that we can celebrate your death. Because when we do, we celebrate the sacrifice you did for our sins. And your resurrection is the proof that that sacrifice was accepted. We do not serve a dead God, but a living Savior. Lord, we pray that you'll remind us of this every day, that you'll infuse us with this true and abiding joy that in our lives we celebrate a living God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We've been looking at... Uh, Oh, Children's Church. Well, well, well. Okay. Thank you, Frank. <laughs> oh, boy. You got the recorder up? Good. Half the congregation is going to go down and listen to Frank, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord. We've been looking at the Christian armor. Alva, can you turn my mic down just a tad? I'm hearing it ring. Yeah, there. That's a little too much. Uh, test, test. There we go. That's good. Great. I just heard the feedback start to ring and didn't want to listen to that all day. Anyway, today we're looking at verse 17 of Ephesians 6, which says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And we're actually only looking at the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation interestingly enough, follows the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. And as I was thinking about this this week, it occurred to me, the power, uh, the, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. So we see the shoes protecting our feet and the helmet protecting our head, and we see that God in his armor, his whole armor, protects us from the soles of our feet to the crown of our head. Every part of us is protected by the armor of God. There's no chink in this armor. And it's important for us to understand that. I'm reading from the ChristianArsenal.com on the full armor of God in the description of the Roman helmet. The Romans had the best helmet of the ancient world. Many other nations used helmets of cloth wrappings, animal hides, or bones, or hooves. The Roman helmet had a chin strap, a visor, and came down to cover the back and sides of the neck. Officers' helmets had a ridge on top 
on which was mounted plumage or some sort of brush, depending on the rank. In the physical arena, the helmet protects the soldier's head from injury. In the spiritual battle, the helmet of salvation protects us in the most important battlefield, our thought life. The scripture says, as a man thinks, so is he. I think this verse explains what it is the helmet of salvation is supposed to do in our lives. 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says this, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought obedience. David Jeremiah in his series, Terms of Engagement, said this about the helmet of salvation. Their helmet reminds us that Jesus Christ wants to equip us with himself, with his purpose. He wants us to be equipped with his plans and his thoughts, with his concepts, with his truth, with his revelation. And with him, we can stand victorious in the midst of the fury of attacks that are leveled against us. And I quoted that right from his message on the helmet of salvation. This helmet is more than just being sure we are saved. That is a component of the helmet of salvation, is the fact that we have assurance. We don't have to wonder. We can know. But you see, our salvation actually has three components to it when we look at it. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. When God gave us his righteousness and established a state of between us, the helmet of salvation reminds us of this peace and gives us assurance of his love. We are being saved from the power of sin in our lives. The helmet of salvation helps us to discipline our thought lives and seek a greater understanding of Christ. As we learn more and more of what it means to be like Christ, how to walk in his righteousness, this knowledge helps us to become more like Christ. When we walk in the peace, then we walk in the peace of God that passes all understanding. And we will be saved completely from the presence of sin, and we will walk in fellowship with him. The helmet reminds us that what we see here in this world is not where our hearts should be. This is not our home. We have a greater hope in eternity. When that day comes, our peace will be complete. And we will have a complete understanding 
of his love for us. The helmet of salvation is personified in Jesus Christ. Literally, he is our helmet of salvation. John 7, 14 to 16 says this, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. But, it was, but when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. The Jews were then astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus' teaching was with such wisdom that it astonished those who heard him. When they asked, how do you know this stuff? You don't have a college degree. He answered, everything I teach comes from the Father. In Matthew 12, the scribes and the Pharisees demanded that Jesus do a sign. And in 12.42, Jesus says this as a completion of his answer to this, to their saying. He said, you will not receive a sign. And then he says this. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at, at the judgment and will condemn it. The queen of the south is the one that heard the Solomon, that traveled all that distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And he's saying, at the day of judgment, she's going to rise up and she's going to accuse you. And why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He's saying, standing right in front of you, something greater than the wisdom of Solomon. Who is he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's saying, I, my wisdom, is greater than Solomon's. Why? Because it comes straight from the Father. As I study the questions Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 1, 20-25, I was both thrilled and amazed to see how questions asked 2,000 years ago can be so relevant to questions being asked today. Starting at verse 20, and I'm reading from the New American Standard here. I'm going to actually read a paraphrase in a minute. He says this, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and 
the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I'm going to read from the J.B. Phillips translation. It's a paraphrase, which is why I don't use it a lot, but here he says some things that really speak to what, what's going on here, and I, I wanted to read this. For consider what <coughs> what have the philosopher, the writer, the critic of this world to show for all their wisdom? Has not God made the wisdom of this world look foolish? For it was after the world in its wisdom failed to know God that he in his wisdom chose to save all who would believe by the simple-mindedness of the gospel message. And here's the key. Jesus said, allow the children to come to me. He wanted his message to be so simple that little children could understand it. So his message is a simple message. It's an understandable message. So he used the simple-mindedness of the message of the gospel. And the Jews asked for miraculous proofs, and the Greeks, and I love this, the way he says it here, the Greeks, an intellectual panacea. If you will, an intellectual answer to all questions. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and sheer nonsense to the Gentiles. But for those who are called, whether Jews or Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this is really only natural, for God's foolishness is wiser than men, and his weakness is stronger than men. You see, his turn of phrase saying an intellectual panacea is really what the Greeks were looking for. They wanted an answer, a simple, or not, an, not a simple answer. They wanted actually a complex answer, something that was hard to understand but still you know, made them feel good about themselves. I can understand this. And it was an answer to everything. 2,000 years later, the world is still trying to find that panacea. Today, they call it the grand unified theory or the unified field theory. Wikipedia actually has a third term, the theory of everything. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And they all deal with the same thing. What is it that makes the atom hold together? They're trying to explain why they just don't fly apart all those positively charged particles tightly packed together in the nucleus of an atom. And they don't understand why it doesn't just fly apart. You see, our understood laws of physics say it should. This grand unified theory is trying to explain our existence by taking God out of the equation. Here's something that's very interesting. The Bible has the answer. 
In Colossians 1.17, it says this, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, I don't know you don't want to hear me murder the Greek language, so I'm not going to try and pronounce the original word. But the original word there that's translated hold together literally means stand together. If we were able to look deep inside of an atom and able to see all those protons packed together in that nucleus, and we were to see what was holding them together, we would see Jesus. He is what holds the stuff we are made of together. He is what holds the universe in his hands. But that answer is too simple-minded. It's a foolish answer. And so, the wise are confounded because they do not accept the revelation of God. All true knowledge comes from God, which is why Jesus said, everything I do comes from the Father. The wisdom Jesus trusted in was from the Father and Jesus was the expression of the Father's wisdom. In the same way, Jesus is to us our wisdom. That's what the helmet of salvation is all about. The helmet of salvation is Jesus being to us our wisdom. And as we walk in Christ, we become the expression of his wisdom in the world. This is not automatic. It just doesn't happen. We must remember to walk in obedience to his word and rely on the Holy Spirit for this to happen. As we see in Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Who? Jesus. Everything we need to know and understand is found in him. He reveals himself to us through his word. This is a treasure far greater than any wealth sought by the world today. The question we must ask ourselves is how much do we truly value God's wisdom? The answer to that question is found by asking how much time do I spend seeking it out? What I truly value is where I spend my time. The helmet of salvation is required for ministry. And here's where I added to my notes from Sunday school. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 say this, And he personally gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints in the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. Chip Ingram said in his lesson today, 
I wrote it down right after he said it so I wouldn't forget. Leaders are gifted to equip. Every member is a minister. It's important for us to understand. Every member is a minister. So why is the helmet of salvation required? 1 Peter 3.15 says this, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. When I was 16 years old, I had to change schools. When I did, a teacher asked a kid that was in the class, same class as me, to help me find my way around the school. First thing I noticed about this kid was he was different. I couldn't explain it, I just knew. There was something that was different about him. And so he asked me to go to church. I decided I would. And for the first time up in Maine, in a Baptist church in Machias, I heard the message of the gospel. And I knew he was different. And what he had, I wanted. There was nothing spectacular about him. It was just that he acted differently than any other kid my age. And that's what the helmet of salvation does in our lives. It protects our thought life from Satan's attacks and helps us to think differently. One of the things we learned in Ephesians was in order for us to be transformed, to be changed from within, we need to be transformed in our thought lives. We need to change the way we think. And that's what the helmet of salvation does. It makes us different because we think differently. The helmet of salvation is the power of God in our lives. 1 Corinthians 2, 3-5 says this, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. The helmet keeps us humble by reminding us it is not the messenger, but the message that's important. That is so key. We can't just be, oh, I'm so great because I'm a preacher, or I teach Sunday school, or I do this, or I do that, or whatever. No. I I'm a beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. Romans 1.16 and the New American Standard say this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first 
and also to the Greek. The helmet makes us bold by demonstrating the gospel is the power of God for salvation. You see, God is the one who gives the increase. It's the Holy Spirit that works in the heart that finally brings a person to Christ. I heard the message of the gospel when I was 16, and for weeks I wrestled. I knew it in my head. But I didn't truly grasp the significance. I heard the message. I heard what the sinner's prayer was. I even prayed the sinner's prayer. Lord, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Make me a new person. Didn't work. Then one day I was sitting there in the quietness of my heart and the Holy Spirit said three words to me. Three words. You need him. And the light went on. And I just turned and I said, I need you. In humbleness, And the joy of the Lord was so great. Even today I feel it. God is just so good. Because all we have to do is understand that simple-minded message. I need Jesus. That's it. In order to get saved, it's as simple as that. Just acknowledge my need. The helmet is procured by reading God's word. 2 Timothy 3.15 says this, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul was as a mentor, talking to Timothy. And he was saying, look, your grandmother was teaching you the scriptures. You were learning the scriptures from a very young age. And that led you to the power of God, which is the message of salvation. And the wisdom Timothy had came from the diligent study of the word. So as he grew, as he became a Christian and started walking in faith and started studying, he started gaining the wisdom of God in his life. The helmet of salvation is only possible through prayer. James 1.5 says this, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And I know a lot of us have heard this verse before in many different ways. But I want us to think through this whole verse here for a second. The first step, there are actually three steps, if you will, in this whole process. The first step is, first, we must understand we lack wisdom. And that seems a pretty obvious thing to think about. But you know what? There are so many people who think they have the answers to 
everything. Trust me, they don't. That's why God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. They hear, turn the other cheek, and they say, that doesn't make sense. I'm not going to be a doormat for everybody. But you know what? That's God's teaching. When God's wisdom confounds that person who knows everything, it's his way of poking him in the ribs and saying, gotcha. You see, God's wisdom seems foolish on the surface. But my suffering, because somebody did something to me, what is that compared to eternity? See, the answers that the person who doesn't understand Christ look at are for the here and now, and not for the forever. God's answers are for the forever. So they're not going to be on the same time scale. The second step we must acknowledge, the second step is we must acknowledge we lack wisdom. Many people think to themselves, I'm as dumb as a box of rocks. And that's as far as it goes. They don't take the next step and say, God, I don't understand. Most of the time it's because they're indifferent. They don't care about the answer. The third step, we must ask for the answer. I know I've complained to God and said, I don't understand, and I've just left it there. I didn't ask for the answer. There are two reasons why I didn't. The first, I didn't care to know the answer because it would make me responsible. That's right, mea culpa. I didn't want to know the answer because I didn't want to do what he was telling me to do. I was disobedient. The second reason I was afraid God would be angry at the question. And this one here, it is so easy to do. But it is the one that James answers in this verse. What does he say? Without reproach. God will never reproach us for an honest question answered. Asked. God will never reproach. God will never criticize us if we genuinely don't understand and we ask a genuine question. And here's a promise we can count on He will give wisdom generously, He's not going to be stingy. 
He will always give us more than we ask for. So we can count on this. If we ask honest questions, no matter how much we think it might be inappropriate, if we're honest in our questions with God, He won't reproach us and He will answer those questions. It may not be immediate. We may have to wait for the answer. Daniel had to wait for the answer when he prayed. There are times when God's answer comes through experience. Now I just want to look at using the helmet of salvation. And there are three basic areas we need to use the helmet of salvation. First, when confronted with temptation. As we saw before in the spiritual as we saw before, the spiritual battle is fought primarily in the thought life. And I'm not going to read the whole of Matthew 4 on how Satan tried to tempt Jesus. Homework assignment, read this, read it this week. Jesus provided the template of how to use the helmet to defend against temptation. It's very simple. Just quote a verse that is relevant to the temptation. When Jesus was tempted to turn the stones into bread, he quoted Deuteronomy and said, Man shall not live by bread, but by God's word. He valued his father more than a little bread. Remember God hated Esau because he did not value God and sold his birthright for a bowl of pottage? If you will, Jesus did just the opposite of what Esau did in the same situation. We also need the helmet of salvation to provide us wisdom when confronted with questions. We need to have good answers. And the only way to have those answers is to know the word of God and to have a good understanding of his intent so we may stand in defense of our faith and proclaim the gospel in an understandable way. We also need the helmet of salvation when confronting the strongholds of sin in our lives. The helmet of salvation is used to demolish these strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. We read 5 earlier, but I wanted to read verse 4 as well as 5 again. It bears repeating. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When I first got saved, the first thing that changed, I stopped swearing. For me, it was not a fight. It just happened. It's the way it was. 
I'm ashamed to say that I've had my moments since. A lot of times nobody hears me, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. As I grew in Christ, God started pointing out other things that need to be changed, like indifference, anger, impatience. Suffice it to say, one sign we are growing spiritually is the helmet of salvation makes us aware of where Satan has landed his beachheads in our sinful selves. If you are going along and saying, I'm just fine, no problem here, you need to examine your helmet. When was the last time you got serious with God with a Bible in your hand? One area I need to get back to is memorizing the scripture. I have said this before, but it bears repeating. Even if you feel your memory is like a basket trying to hold water, you should still be working at it. You see, every time you dip that basket in the water, it comes out just a little bit cleaner. Our helmet doesn't just point at our sin and say, look at that mess. Clean it up. Jesus will lovingly give us the dustpan and he will take the broom and help us to clean up the mess. See, that's what the helmet of salvation is. It's Jesus helping us get our lives straightened out. It's Jesus cleaning up our thought life and showing us there is a better way. Okay. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are so good to us. We thank you that even though we do those things that that are not the right thing to do. You are still there to tell us that you forgive us and you can help us do better the next time. We pray that you'll give us the strength and you'll remind us to always seek you to, to not make the same mistakes over and over and over again, but to truly walk in your forgiveness and in your righteousness and show your love to others. In Jesus' name, amen. And I did want to do that. Uh, probably just